Hello and welcome to New Business Paradigms. I'm Matt Renner, the Executive Director of the World Business Academy, and I'm here with Ronaldo Brutico, the Academy's President and Founder. The World Business Academy is a nonprofit business think tank and action incubator dedicated to transforming the consciousness of business leaders, business students, and the public at large in order to inspire business to take responsibility for the whole of society. We're recording this show on December 6, 2016. Today, as a consequence of upheavals around the world, politics and the future are in flux. There's a new government in the United States, and the European Union is under existential threat. There's a lot of ground to cover, so let's focus on explaining the economic impacts of various major shifts that are just starting to unfold, and what our audience can expect in the short term, Ronaldo. Well, thank you uh, very much. You know, Matt, um, one of our um, listeners asked us a question that's, that's related to this. So I'm thinking maybe if I can recast it as what are the what, what does the economics of Trump look like in in, 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 in with a broad umbrella rather than a narrow one? But here's yeah. what I mean by that. Uh, I know we were going to talk at one point about what I thought of the carrier decision, in which I think we can, and and some other issues like that. But the broader question I think this listener was asking is, what do you think is going to unroll, and how's it going to roll? We we touched on this in the last show. And uh, to everybody listening at this show, I want to tell you that we are in the process of scheduling ourselves for next year. And next year, we may be more frequent than we are this year, but we will for sure have a specific time and date that we will every time hit. Uh, We won't be having the the problems with moving around that intervened with some of our shows this year. Having said that, because we're changing our technology, which is very exciting to make it easier to do. Having said that, the Trump... The, the Trump election, which, as you know, started with a 800-point drop in the Dow overseas market trading the night of the election and turned around into a plus the next morning. And we commented in the last show that was done most likely because of signals that were sent to various people on Wall Street. We think it was Jamie Dimon from the transition committee saying, we know what you guys want. And if you look at the paper today, today's Financial Times, U.S. edition, you'll see Jamie Diamond literally repeating what I said was probably the deal they gave him on the phone. And in fact, Diamond's stock, Morgan Stanley, has gone up by 20% since Trump was elected. Um, There are other stocks which people think will go up because of Trump's election. Some of those stocks, I believe, are incorrect. So will, um, will oil stocks go up dramatically? No, I don't think they will. Why? I don't think Trump can affect the outcome in oil. We'll talk about that more later. But other stocks, like banking stocks, have already benefited and stand a benefit. Why? Because part of what Trump signaled to Jamie Dimon, either that morning, which is what I think happened, and that's why Wall Street was buying, is he said, look, we know what you guys want. You want to take all that money, that trillion dollars that your clients have offshore, and you want to bring it back to America, and you want them to have a very low tax, like maybe 5%. We called that in the last show. They said, we know you guys don't want to have a lot of regulation because look at all the money you made before 2008. And but for the small incident that you practically bankrupted the planet, we know you want to go back and have that kind of freedom again. So we're going to we're going to back off the Dodd-Frank regulations. We're going to you're not going to have to worry about Glass-Steagall. We may even let you start getting into derivatives again. And why I say that is because the biggest bank counterparty in the world by far on derivatives right now is Deutsche Bank, which is you know, one of probably the main bank to one of the main banks, certainly to, to Trump. So, so we, we, what we're talking about here is a series of sectors that people think will do well. By the way, I want to comment real quickly on a sector people think won't do well and they're wrong, and that's the renewable energy sector. 
And that's not a political comment, that's an economic comment. And so I, when we talk about the oil, I will probably touch in a little bit why oil stocks will not do that well under Trump and why the renewable energy sector probably will continue to do well. But the, the broader economic issues are ones that relate, I think, to deficits. And I think, and we touched on that in the last show, but I want to now spend some time focusing on it. What we see coming here at the Academy is a bump in the interest rates for sure in December of a quarter point. My guess is that's going to be followed by another quarter point bump, certainly within four months, probably less. The, the additional factors that will give rise to that bump are we are already way below 5% unemployment. We are already seeing wage price inflation. We, we mentioned that on the show last time we did this show, and clearly it's now becoming a bigger factor. And that's a good thing. It means that the number of states, in fact, in every state where the minimum wage was up again in every election, it was adopted. For, so you got states pushing towards $15. You've got large corporations pushing towards it. Uh, I reported in the last show about the fact that just on a pure subjective basis, I noticed that signs were going up in burger flipping joints where the minimum starting is now 1025 out here instead of 750 or 9 or 8. Um, so this wage price push means that when you have a tight labor market, which we do, when the number of new people you can hire is limited, which it is, then what you have to do is be willing to pay more for the people you've got. So I see that really as a big uh, push on wages, and that will not necessarily be offset with productivity gains. Now, there is one form of wage push which will be offset by productivity gains. I'll touch on at the end. And that has to do with what some, some regions, particularly South Carolina, is doing a great job of pushing manufacturing into their state with all the normal inducements, like what Carrier got, tax breaks, but with the additional inducement that they've tied their, their, their junior college education program specifically to the employer who agrees to come in the state so they train your employees for you. So they're taking people who were basically slopping pigs at a, at a hog farm that was been closed, and they're training them at the local junior college to be able to operate robotic machinery. So human-assisted manufacturing is the future for America. We, we don't want to be in the business of having lots of people turning cogs on the, on the assembly line. We want to have people who are technicians, who are keeping the robots going and giving us the productivity advantage that robots and humans can get you. So in a plant like, and there's one I know down there in South Carolina, which would in, in the old days, it's, 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 it's a scrap metal plant that creates new steel, brand new. It's all automated. In, uh, in a prior period, that plant would have had thousands and thousands of workers. Today, it's got less than a thousand, probably I'm going to guess four or 500, 600 tops. Why? Because it's so automated. But as a result, it's profitable. So it's taking scrap metal, which it's too expensive to ship to China. It's melting that scrap metal down in America, turning it into roll sheet rolls, and selling it on the open market in America, saving the freight and all inbound duties and tariffs. So what you're looking at in the Trump world is the following overarching things. Number one, for the first year, you continue to see economic gains. I think the market generally will continue to do well because I think the market is betting on higher profitability, and lower taxes. Let's just go back to Jamie Dimon for a moment. If in fact Trump goes through on, and Jamie Dimon is crowing about the fact that he believes that Trump will, with reduced taxes on corporate income, 
Now, let's just say, for example, the net effective drop is from you know, 35 to 25 or 10-point drop. That means that you can keep your sales flat and you're 10% more profitable for doing nothing. You're just paying the government less. So everybody's now starting to figure that into their calculations. So bank stocks will go up on that. In addition, bank stocks will go up because of the clearly rollback of regulation, which is coming. And last but not least, bank stocks will go up because what's going to happen is profitability of the private sector means there'll be more bank deals to do. So the investment banking sides of the banks will do better. And as I say, and I fear, we may be looking at the reemergence of derivatives in the U.S. If, if regulation is fully relaxed. So what I see is at least a year out, I see the economy growing. I see the market doing well. I see bonds not doing well. We should probably come back and talk about bonds separately and even talk maybe even separate from that about muni bonds. I don't see the bond market doing as well because the inflation will, will chew at the price of the bond. So the yields would have to go up too high to make it attractive. So I'd say bonds are a bad thing right now. But we have a, a clear growth strategy in place, which is coupled with a deregulation strategy, which will probably enhance the markets. Now, what does that mean in the long haul? What it means is deficit spending. You can't lower tax. This is the, this is the classic Laffler curve that is, is laughable. The Laffler curve was the beginning of trickle-down economics under Reagan. It's never worked. It can't work. It won't work. So at the end of the day, you won't see greater economic activity because the tax rates went down sufficient to make up for the lost taxes, which means deficits will go up. Now, if the, the most recent pronouncement of the Republicans in the last 24 hours, and we're recording this on Tuesday, the 6th of December, um, in the last 24 hours, even Paul Ryan has come forward and said, well, we're going uh, to overturn Obamacare and we're going to give ourselves three years to figure out what to replace it with, meaning we're going to do nothing. So they'll get the Pyrrhic victor saying, well, we finally killed Obamacare. And Trump signed it, but there's nothing to replace it with. And they knew that. They've known that all along. So they're going to give the red meat that their base wants to the base. But at the end of the day, I don't know how they get rid of Obamacare. It's, it's, it's doing too much for 20 million people and, frankly, doing a great deal to reduce the costs of, of medical care generally because it slowed the rate of increase. So now let's talk about the industry. Well, the industry is going to do better because the industry is not going to have as many restraining forces on it. So watch for medical costs to resume significant year-over-year -year gains, I mean higher costs for companies that provide that stuff, which means they're going to have higher profits and we're going to get gouged more. So... Medical spending will take a bigger part of our GDP. That's not good. That's inflationary, but it's going to happen. The other thing you're going to see is you're going to see much more, um, uh, I think big pharma is going to do better under Trump. I think you're going to also see um, insurance companies are for sure doing the happy dance. Insurance companies are just beside themselves with Lee. They shouldn't be, but they are. Health insurance. Health insurance and other forms of insurance I think are going to do well. Uh, I think, well, because, see... With regard to health insurance, um, what the health insurance companies will do is they will be unrestrained in their pricing tactics once again. So one of the pressures that Obamacare brought to bear on the insurance industry was you charge too much, more people will come over here. That ain't going to happen anymore. And my guess is what's going to happen is people are going to be forced at some point to find some way around whatever the new insurance scheme is if there is one in three years. The expectation that there will be a new 
scheme has to benefit insurance company stocks because people are in the, when you buy a stock, you're not betting on today's profit, you're betting on tomorrow's profit. So insurance companies are now perceived to be winners given the rhetoric of this administration. And then that's one reason. Now, why, do you, why would that be true of casualty insurers and others? Because I think one of the things that you're going to start to see is a general deregulatory push, except for those states like California where they have an active insurance commissioner. You're going to see a general deregulatory push to like let insurance companies charge what they want. And what we know about unrestrained uh, capitalism when, it's, when there's no offsetting free market force is those with the most money make the most money. In other words, if, if you've got the amount of money that it takes to create legislation in your favor, you will get it. That's the whole revolving door. That's K Street in Washington. It's, what, it's what's wrong with the country. So is he going to drain the swamp? Apparently not. I mean, you know, three of his top economic picks are ex-Goldman Sachs. And if you had to pick one organization external to the U.S. government that has had more influence on the course of the nation's future, of the nation's, the nation's direction, for the last 125 years or more, it would be Goldman Sachs. So let me pause you there because I want to just put a question to you about the last, you know, that, that was a lot of information all at once. I, would you summarize that in saying that essentially the economics and the goals of the economy are going to shift away from building a middle class and towards exploiting uh, American consumers? Because that's what I'm, what I'm hearing is there's more gouging on the horizon. I think that American consumers will do worse. Yes. Um, I think, though, they won't feel the pain initially because they've got rising incomes. And those ri- that, that will continue because of the increase in the minimum wage. And it will increase because of how tight the labor markets are. So when you put those two factors together and you have wage push inflation, middle class is going to feel like they've got more money, although many of the things that are essential the middle class has to buy will not be addressed. Now, we don't know this for sure because one of the things about Trump is you don't know what he stands for, there's, and he doesn't know. I mean, he's, he's sort of making it up as he goes along. Uh, and there's any number of things that he could do accidentally that could put a you know kibosh on the whole thing. I mean, if he really got... I mean, if he really kept going down this China path he's on, he could create unbelievable havoc. Um, and, and I'm not saying that the, 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 the politics of the one China policy is live or die. I mean, I can, I can see a legitimate political argument one can make on both sides of that equation. But I'll tell you this, you don't ask the question about whether we should have a one China policy or not casually. And you certainly don't set the new China policy in a tweet. So I think that whoever was trying to send a message at the administration, whether that was Trump or somebody behind Trump, I think that the way they sent it was fairly dangerous, ham-fisted, potentially very dangerous for Taiwan, by the way, uh, and also gives rise to what the Chinese already believe at a fairly deep level, which is they can't trust us, they better be tougher than we are, and, and, or we will take advantage of them. And so there's going to be some push here. Now, the Chinese want to sell to our consumers, and we want to be able to invest in their growing economy. Because even, in, you know, it just came out last uh, two weeks ago, you know, China's growing again at 6.7% or more. That's a pretty good rate. I mean, to a country like ours, which is probably going to do 3% this year. That's double what we're doing. So I think there's a lot of potential synergy there. But I think if you're going to milk, milk that synergy, you have to be careful. I also think people have to be, and we said this last time, you got to be really careful. Don't just look at the headline, look below it. 
example, and I know you you had Carrier on the list of things you wanted to mention, and you know, um, so Carrier was going to export 2,100 jobs to Mexico. He leaned on them and said, "We're going to we're going to we're going to slam your parent, who's a military contractor, so it's going to cost them a ton." And that's that was the that was the vel- that, that was the steel fist, and the velvet glove was, "Oh, and we'll give you a seven million dollar tax break in Indiana." Great, so they stayed for seven million dollars, and the fact that their defense half, co- half their job stayed. Yeah, that's my point. Right. And within twenty four hours, Trump said there's going to be a thirty five percent tariff on people who export jobs. So does that mean that the thousand jobs that get exported from Carrier, everything they make in Mexico is a thirty five percent tariff? Or does Carrier skate free because they agreed to save half the jobs they threatened to remove and didn't remove? And remember what I said to you earlier, the future for American manufacturing is not labor intensive. Um, I had this interesting conversation with Paul Tudor Jones in New York last week because he was talking about what are we going to do with all the guys, and it's primarily guys, some women, all the guys who can't drive trucks anymore because we can do it better with with Uber and Google. Automated Automated, yeah. right? Autonomous driving. And we were chatting about that because he was being interviewed by ABC. And so when that the Transportation is cam- the biggest sector employer for blue-collar men. Right. There's like 5 million or something, right? White. Well, not white, but blue-collar. Blue-collar. Yeah. So he was, he was pointing that out because he was being interviewed uh, for this uh, uh, ABC special that's going to air. And when the camera stopped rolling... I, I pulled him aside. I said, you know, Paul, there's two answers to that question that you didn't give. He gave some very good ones, but the two that he didn't give that I think are really worthwhile. Number one, I was on the very first airplane, Matt, that flew from Los Angeles to New York without a pilot ever touching the controls. It was an L-1011 TWA flight 30-some years ago, 30 years ago. And there's no question in my mind that every single one of those planes that have flown since then could have done it Probably better. The landing was perfect. The takeoff was perfect. It was with computer precision. And yet I notice that it's illegal to fly an aircraft like that in America without two pilots, a pilot and a co-pilot. Now, part of the reason for that could be that you want to have a guy like Sully Sullenberger at the controls when something does go wrong. And you don't want to trust the computer because the computer could not have landed in the river. And I think that's a legitimate concern. And by the way, if that's what it takes for the fact that we have so many accidents on our highways with truck drivers that are overtired, is to say, yes, we'll let you do autonomous driving. However, there has to be a human in the cab at all times. Some people would call that feather bedding. Why do you need a pilot at the stick when the computer can fly better? And the answer is for that occasion when you don't, when the, when the machine can't. And by the way, on our roads, it's tougher than being in an airplane because you've got ice, you've got snow, you've got wind changes, you've got all kinds of things. So I think part of the answer to the question is you don't fire all the truck drivers. You, you make them basically technicians who are in charge of the computer that's driving the, in the truck. That will pay them the same or more and will dramatically increase safety. And they can make a cab that has a treadmill in it so they don't have to sit there and get heart disease the whole time while they're driving. Whatever. Uh, you know, I mean, they, they can do whatever they want. The point is um, if they had to sit there for an eight-hour shift watching the truck drive itself for the purpose of ensuring its safety, given how much money is on that truck, that's a legitimate expense. That guy should not lose his job or that woman. So that was one answer I gave to Paul, which I think is a good answer, which is just because you can drive an airplane without a pilot doesn't mean you should. And if there's ever that time, 
where you need the East River to land in, you're glad to have Sully at the controls. In the case of, of, of freight, uh, and by the way, one way to make this even more economic would be to go to two tractor trailers. So every tractor had two trailers. Uh, and that would more than cover the expense. In fact, the expense of the driver is really not the driver anymore, so to speak, pardon the pun. The expense is the truck itself, the engine, the fuel it burns, which we can come back to in another show because I'd love to talk about getting off that fuel system and about a great engine that's being developed by a company to run on hydrogen. Um, but the key is you don't need to fire them even if the car can drive itself. And I'd say the same thing of Uber. Just because the Uber car can drive itself doesn't mean it should. Still should have a guy at the controls. You know, that's what I think Elon Musk is trying to kind of quietly edge in here. He's saying, you know, we have autonomous driving in the Tesla now, but we don't recommend you use it without a human. Well, that sounds to me pretty safe, and it does protect those jobs. The second thing that protects jobs, I believe, is that America has got to get on with what South Carolina is doing. Now, if I were to pick of all the states in America who are the most advanced in their manufacturing policy, I bet none of my listeners today would have guessed that South Carolina is the answer, but it is. Because the guy in charge of development down in that triangle area in South Carolina, he figured it out. He figured out that the future wasn't traditional manufacturing, it was enhanced manufacturing techniques. In other words, taking your your, your workforce, whatever they were, flipping burgers before, doesn't matter. You take your junior college and you say to a steel company, We'll train your workers to run your robots. You even send us the robot manual ahead of time, and we'll have our junior college actually do that for you. Is it really South Carolina, not North Carolina? South Carolina. It is South Carolina. Yeah. So my point is enhanced automated manufacturing is the future for America. Now, and there's a, I didn't give Paul that answer because. I think that that's a fair answer, but it, like it's pushing for something that doesn't exist. Although it does exist, we're just not deploying it. The second answer I gave, I said, you know, Paul, why is it that Americans have the largest work week of any population in the Western world by far? And what would be wrong if we can continue to increase the economy, which we can, absolutely, we can grow this economy dramatically a number of ways. Why not pay people for 35 hours what they would have made in 40? In other words, and, and, and take that extra time, encourage people to walk, encourage to take better care of their health, encourage them to do yoga or exercise or meditation or anything, and, and create a healthier workforce. Now, I'm not saying we should get a workforce that's as, 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 uh, as lax as some countries, but clearly the United States workforce is putting in too many hours, and if we could chop at 10 or 15%, and we could do it because the economy was growing from, from things I can, that I can list, which I will be happy to list, then it seems to me the idea that we'd be working five hours a week less is not a problem. It's a good thing. And that's how you make up for any jobs you might have lost. So I don't see job issues at all on the horizon. I see them as, and when you put enhanced manufacturing in, I see jobs growth and I see the quality of the job. And I go back to the example of steel mill. Steel mill. Uh, one of the people that was interviewed in this article I saw was a woman that was making, I think it was twelve or fifteen dollars an hour slapping pigs, and she was making over twenty dollars an hour greasing a robot, oiling a robot. Boy, was she a happy camper! And all she had to do was go back to school. And some states are now providing you not only with the tuition for your junior college because that's getting taken care of, they're actually providing you with a stipend if you go back. 
because they want you to retrain. Well, when you retrain somebody, you don't want to retrain them for a job that existed 20 years ago. We shouldn't be retraining anybody to work in the mill, mills, 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 but we should be training people how to work with robotics. We should be training with control systems, etc. So I'm hearing two different things from you actually right now, Ronaldo. I'm hearing an optimism about the possibilities inherent in some of our challenges in our current economy. But I'm also hearing uh, short-term optimism in the opposite kind of how I'd categorize the, uh, the other kind of uh, economic growth that we're going to be seeing in the first year of the Trump administration. So which is it? Are you, are you excited about the future under the Trump administration in the short term? And you think it's going to get us to that longer term, healthy no. homeostasis of no, 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 no. capitalism that actually works for the middle class? No, no. I think, no, I think that, um, first of all, because you're going to see deficits balloon, you're going to see inflation. Um, the benefit, by the way, to people in my generation, so the baby boomers, uh, will be able to put money in money market accounts again because we'll get a decent rate of interest. Um, home ownership will be a big, if, if you can afford to buy one, it's going to be really a good thing because if you have fixed 20 and 30 year debt and inflation kicks in, which it's going to, boy, you all of a sudden got a really nice asset growing for yourself that will exceed the value of the cost to you of, of, of the inflation. But no, I'm seeing inflation. What I said to you is I can see a year out that it's going to be good because mm-hmm. of the stimulation that's going to happen. I'm waiting to see what happens with the infrastructure spending. If the that's infa- a big question mark. Yeah, the, 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 yeah if, if the infrastructure spending bill gets passed the way the Democrats are talking about, which is to actually build new stuff or repair stuff, that would be very, very good. If it gets passed as a way to pay more money to companies that are already in the game, that would not be so good. For for projects that are potentially already underway or... Yeah, well, there's, there's a thing called conspicuous consumption. And, and it works in some cases, it won't work in this case. A conspicuous consumption, the best example is building a pyramid. So, you know, you could say, why did the pharaoh build a pyramid? Dumbest thing he could do. Because he kept a lot of people employed. They were slaves, but he had to feed them beer and wine, a beer and, and bread. And, you know, there's absolutely no social utility to it. It buries one guy. But it kept the, it, it, it was part of an economic um, activity. I'll give you another example, though. This is my favorite one. After World War II, uh, Franklin Roosevelt was faced with a tough choice. The Liberty ships were the ships that we built at extraordinary rate. I think Kaiser built them. Um, and we built them faster than popcorn because they had to carry all the war materials to Europe. So these are freighters. Okay? And um, these freighters were full. So the day the war ended in Europe, they were, I don't know how many were between here and on the Atlantic Ocean and all the way over to Europe. They were all over the place. And, and they were full of Shoes for soldiers and belts and blankets and canteens and hats and clothing and all kinds of stuff that you use to keep an army marching. Cots and tents and Cots, stoves. Cots, tents. So blanket. here's what the choice Roosevelt faced was. What do you do with all that stuff? If he lets those ships come back and dock in New York Harbor and they sell that on the open market as surplus, it will depress all the industries for the things that we were building for the army all of a sudden, people will buy it cheaper from the U.S. government. They won't be buying the new belt from... from Domestic manufacturer. Yeah, yeah or domestic right. store. So what did he do? I don't know. He dumped the cargo overboard. He really? said, don't bring it back to America. That's conspicuous consumption. It's when you take something, you invest all this money in it. You go, wow, I don't want it to come back and haunt my domestic production. Just sink it offshore, please. And they did. So the Liberty ships were trying to dump the cargo. 
And they did. Now, that was really smart in hindsight. Really, really smart. I don't know if anybody would have let him do it if they knew ahead of time, but he, was, he did the right thing. Well, the same thing is true of any kind of conspicuous consumption. However, if in order to conspicuously consume, you have to create inflationary pressure, over time, the inflationary pressure will do more damage to the consumer. So that's why you're saying that if infrastructure spending that is spent on something that is an investment in the future of the economy, it makes sense because yeah. borrowing that money for a future payoff is good. Yeah. If you're if you're let's say borrowing thirty billion dollars to build a giant wall across the border with Mexico that is unnecessary, is that something you would see as conspicuous, or, or do you have a different example that well, Trump's planned on on the on the on the Mexican wall? The only w way you could justify the Mexican wall would be if you could get an equal or greater reduction in your costs of maintaining border security. So I understand that the INS, the Immigration Naturalization Service, has been adding tremendous number of personnel. They have their payrolls uh, exploded upward. I understand that we maintain drones and aircraft and all kinds of things to detect intervention. If your cost of the wall fully amortized over a 20, 30 year period uh, will so dramatically reduce your personnel cost to keep the border closed, then you can make a case that it's economically valid, even if it's not socially, politically what you want. However, if the border wall goes up and there is no de significant decrease in the costs of immigration and naturalization service, which I believe will be the case, then it, then it is conspicuous consumption. It's, 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 it's spending money on something that keeps people hired to build it, but it has no social utility. Now let's talk about bridges. Bridges have great social utility. Roads have great social utility. Um, sewer treatment plants, great social utility. My favorite one, subways. I mean, the best subway in America used to be the Washington, D.C. suburb, Metro. And that subway system is so bad right now, it is in severe people, calamity. People have been dying on it. Yeah. yeah. And by the way, the oldest subway system, and some would argue the one that gets the most utility, is the New York subway system. And it's got massive problems because it's 100 and some years old and it hasn't been properly maintained. So if you go about fixing the subways, if you go about putting in high-speed rail, by the way, to take traffic off the roads, if you, if you um, which is then more fuel-efficient, uh, if you, and by the way, if you noticed in the last 20 years, it used to be very rarely could you go to an airport with rapid transit. And now it's uncommon not to be able to. You can get to Newark, you can get to JFK, you can get to, to Dulles, uh, you can get to O'Hare, okay? And you can soon even get to LAX, although it's a slow tram situation. So what, what's happening is if we invest in our infrastructure, which then increases our productivity, and increases our ability to function as an economic society, that's great investment spending. And doing it now, I've said for years, at least two or three years on the show, you do it when the cost of money is cheap. So if you're going to do a 30-year bonded indebtedness to build a new bridge or repair a bridge, you want to do it when the cost of the money is super, super cheap, not when it's expensive. So you want to do it in the first phase before the inflation spiral kicks in. Now, when I look into my crystal ball more than a year out, I can't see where the Trump policies will take us. So I'm only looking one year out. And for that first year, I see inflationary pressures coming. I see a lot of economic activity. I see a stronger stock market. I see a weaker bond market because of the inflation. So, you know, this is not a time to be buying bonds. And, you know, Matt, something I'd like to talk about. Um, by the way, I think muni bonds are particularly bad right now because you're going to get a double whammy. You're going to get 
whammied by the inflation, which hurts you on the yield curve side, and then forces the price of the bond down faster than the yield curve can take you up. But I think that the other issue that you need to, and, and by the way, if, if I just use too many terms there that people don't know. Yes, you did. did I? Okay. <laughs> so, um, the bond market works, okay, the price of a bond is inverse to the rate of inflation. So when inflation goes up, bond prices come down. Why? Because it's a fixed coupon return, okay? So you have to give me more return if inflation goes up. So if you have a 5% bond that you bought for $100 when inflation was running at 2% and now it's running at 4%, you're going to have to give me 7, 8, 9, 10%. Well, how do you do that? The only way to do that is to take it off the price of the bond. So the $100 bond then drops to being worth maybe 90 or 85. So what we're talking about is the price of the bond dropping faster than you can make interest from the bond you bought. Which is at five percent. That's a what is that a deflationary cycle there? Or well, in that case, it's a it, it's just it's a disaster. It, no, it's just it's just that's just a function of the bond market. The bond market is inverse to, to inflation. But is that what you're predicting? I'm saying. It, it, do you see? Oh bonds, yeah, 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 yeah. Bonds, 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 bonds are a bad investment because with inflation coming up. But I'm saying that's a that's why it's a corollary. It's like I don't have to. I told you, a b is automatic. So in inflationary period, bond prices drop. Got it. For the most part, and there's certainly be some exceptions, but we don't need to go into. One of the exceptions has to do with what's called municipal bonds. Municipal bonds are going to get a double whammy. And municipal bonds are the borrowing done by municipal governments. That's... Yeah, by local governments. And they're typically done pursuant to tax exemptions. Meaning and... that people who own them don't have to pay tax on that income. Right, right. Um, exactly, on that income. And so municipal bonds have a, a strong following, particularly in people who are savers. The problem is if the value of the face of the bond, the principal, is going down, that's unattractive to the bondholder who's going to get a fixed rate of return no matter what the price is worth in the open market. So if I've got a bond that's paying, let's say, 3%, and we live right now in a 1.8% inflationary market, and all of a sudden inflation goes to 4%, which is where I think it's going to head. We won't get there right away, but it'll go up there. All of a sudden, my, um, my bond that was paying me 3% is now underwater. I, I'm making less in interest than You're the losing. impact of inflation. Okay, so that's the, that's a simple example. What's good? Muni bonds could also get hit by tax strategy. If 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 Trump does anything to de- to, 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 to to reduce the non-taxability feature of municipal bonds in order to pay for the reduction in corporate taxes he's ordering, and with the reduction of upper income taxes he's talking about, muni bonds get just pasted. There's got to be billions of dollars in municipal bonds out there, at least, right? Oh yeah, trillions, maybe. Yeah, right? yeah, they're, they're, they're huge. It's just so a huge. So changing that rule of the tax deductibility of muni bond would, would be a be, huge earthquake. Well, it, prospectively only, it would it would keep new bonds from being issued. It won't I change see. the con- the I context of the old bond, but it would what it would do is would ha- hamstring local municipal financing. That's particularly bad because it's hard enough as it is to finance municipal so projects. All of a sudden, it would be a much harder for a local government to build a to new fix a subway or build a fix a bridge or pave a street, build new school buildings. Something like you got that. it, you got it. And and then and then just and I don't want to do it today, but what I'd like to do at some point, we should talk about annuities because people get pitched annuities all the time and they don't really know what they are. They don't realize they're insurance contracts. They don't understand the risks, the upside, the downside, and Annuities are also something like bonds you don't want to buy in a high inflationary period. So on that note, uh, let's go straight to what you're suggesting for people to do basically with this one-year outlook and with the risks on the horizon. 
Okay, well, I think I did this in the last show, but I'll repeat it. Um, I took my gold position from 25% down to 10%. So I'm still holding about 10% of my, my liquidity in gold uh, because I believe the amount of uncertainty is enormous. Um, just a guy who runs his foreign policy with a Twitter account is <laughs> anything's possible. So I'm, I'm hedging against, and that to me, like that's insurance. So I have an insurance contract on my life today, Matt. The insurance company won. I lost. I paid for the insurance and I didn't die. I'm okay with that. I, I, I'm happy to pay because I got the insurance. And one day my beneficiaries will win from that policy. Just not today. And I don't resent having to pay for the insurance in the meantime. That's how I look at the 10% gold position in a period of time that's this destabilized and this uncertain. And we don't even know the cabinet yet. We don't know. And, and, and some of the cabinet, I'm convinced, are people he's putting in there to make his supporters happy and he'll fire them as soon as he wants. Remember, this is the first, this is the guy who's quick to say, you're fired. And this is not a guy who's slow to say, you're fired. So I'm, I'm concerned about the uncertainty of the times. So that's 10%. The other reason I'm holding 10% gold is because gold has this ability to be counterinflationary. So if inflation really kicks up, where we start looking at the kind of inflation we saw in the Nixon era, you know, where you know you're, you're talking in the teens, then all of a sudden gold's going to look really good. So I'm thinking, okay, 10% gold. I was holding 25. We're not as risky as we were. Now we're down to 10. I'll stay with 10. And I went back into the into equities, but I did not go into bonds. There, in my case, there are other kinds of investments that I'm involved in, which are called master limited partnerships. Some are called real estate and real estate partnerships. Each one of those has a different complexion. I'm not gonna go into them today, but that's basically what you need to be looking at. Master limited partnerships, limited partnerships. And you asked me a question before we went on air. Uh, if the Dakota, pipeline, Dakota Access Pipeline is stopped, do I think there'll be more pipelines built? Absolutely, you can count on it. Uh, and um, there are companies uh, that make money from managing those pipelines. So they don't own the oil that goes down the pipeline or the natural gas in most cases, but they get a turnstile, they get a toll booth on what goes down their pipeline. And the reason you're gonna see that happen is because it's gonna be, it's always gonna be cheaper to pump oil and gas through a pipeline than it is to do it on a train or a truck. And it's safer too. So yes, you're gonna see pipelines. And my hope, by the way, is that people building those pipelines, the people who own those pipelines, which will be an interesting growth industry, uh, those people, if they're smart, will build them so that they're very easily adaptable to hydrogen. Because it's very easy to build a pipeline today that could, with almost very small adaptations, become a hydrogen pipeline. And you start converting hydrogen into natural gas, and all of a sudden you got yourself a major globe-changing strategy. Okay, so, and then, so, okay, I think I, I got that all figured out there. Let's let's go ahead and move from the U.S. to Europe because a lot, there's been a lot of talk there and we haven't touched on it yet, Ronaldo. What do you think about what's going on with the defeat of the constitutional reforms package that led to the resignation of Matteo Renzi as Prime Minister of Italy? Okay, so first of all, this is not a pure political play like it was in, say, Brexit. Uh, and certainly not as it was in Austria. I mean, the same day Renzi lost, the right-wing pri um, Prime Minister of Austria lost. I mean, the guy who was clearly right. a yeah. uh, neo-fascist. And so you can say the neo-fascists won in America because Breitbart is sitting at the elbow of the president and the three top executives in the president's campaign were all 
white supremacist people. I mean, they all work for Breitbart. At the same time, and you notice I don't use the term alt-right. I think that's a mistake. I think we should call white supremacy for what it is. It's white supremacy. And you may like it, you may not like it, but at least you label it correctly. You don't pretend it's something else. Um, and by the way, I'm not sure that Trump inherently is a white supremacist, but it, clearly he's turned over a lot of control to them. And someone like Bannon's there and Kellyanne Conway and, and I forget the name of the guy who was the chief operating officer for him. Well, that um, type of political-driven vote I don't think is as much... Uh, from, from the, the, the basically what they're calling the populist rebellion. I don't think that's what happened to Renzi. And I think Renzi correctly in an interview he did with Charlie Rose about a week ago identified the mistake. And the mistake was he made it personal. He took what was a really good idea. I mean, people don't even, do you know what the vote was about? It's like limiting the number of people in the government and streamlining the process of yeah. passing laws. Yeah, so, so here's what it specifically was about. We have 100 senators in a country with 350 million people. Italy's got 600 senators. Insane, yeah. 600. So his rule for, was... For a, for a country that's... It's a the fraction size. of our size. Yeah, what is it? 27 million? Yeah, 27 million. So that's, it's smaller than California, right? So the, the campaign was... A, what Renzi started to do, which is a, was actually a pretty good idea, is reduce the Senate to 100 people. Italy, sorry, 60 million people in Italy. 60 million? Okay, so twice the size of California. Not even twice. So, Renzi was like, why don't we get the 600 senators down to 100 because everything's dying in the Senate because everybody's got their own two cents and there's just too many people. And by the way, it's costing us a lot of money to pay all these people. we got all these offices and everything else. And it's just this giant bureaucracy that has caused Italy to, on average, have one new government every 11 months since World War II. It's crazy, right? So, that was a good idea. Now, he did two things wrong. One thing he did wrong is he basically also wanted to gun the Senate's power and make them more ceremonial, more like the House of Lords, at a time when the House of Lords is becoming less ceremonial. So I think that was a very bad tactical decision. Had it been as simple as go from 600 to 100... Like I a think redistricting, basically. He would have got that. Uh, and then the second mistake he made, which is the one he admitted to Charlie Rose. He said, I made it personal. I said, it's a vote. That, vote with me. Vote with me. And then he made it double down he doubled down and said, if I don't win, I'll resign. And he did resign. Now, why is that important to you and me? Because Europe is coming apart at the seams. The guy who by 2016 will go down in the history books as the best year in the history of the life of a guy named Vladimir Putin. He's winning across the board. He won in Syria. Clear, he's won. He's, um, he won in the Crimea. He's winning in Ukraine. He's literally threatening the very existence of NATO, which was his arch enemy, and may pull off NATO blowing up. He's clearly threatening the European economic community, which may or may not survive. And all these forces that are being destabilized have massive economic consequences. And his tactics are amazing. I mean, he's tactics running a global psyops campaign, and he's... It's, hey incredibly effective they've hacked essentially the algorithms of twitter and facebook and control yeah. massive uh, apparatus of uh, yeah. disinformation he 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 was smart enough as a kgb guy to realize that the the natural resource of russia is not its oil that's what they get paid for its biggest natural resource is its people they have really good computer people and they've had that for 
30, 40 years. It's amazing what those people do. Why they have such a congenital ability to do what they do with computers, we do not know because they certainly don't have the infrastructure for training them that we have here in the U.S. But if you had to pick the best hackers in the world after the U.S. Because it's cold for so long, so they have to sit inside of their computers. <laughs> could be it. I never thought of that. But, <laughs> but, but if you took, like, clearly the number one computer nation in the world is us. I mean, we can hack better than anybody on the planet. And I would say the Russians are second, not the Chinese. But the Chinese have over the Russians, they have more volume. They have way, dozen, and ton, ten times more hackers. So they can, they can play with more stuff. But they don't, they're not better. And you got hackers in Northern Europe, in, 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 in basically Scandinavia. And then you got hackers now in Iran, getting better all the time. And that's about it. I mean, that's who can really hack. It isn't going to be long. Israel. Well, yeah, I didn't count Israel because Israel... It's basically part of the U.S. hacking it's, establishment. It's, it's part of the U.S. hacking establishment. It's, it's a derivative hacker. And, um, and whether, we, whether more of the Israelis are our hackers or more of our hackers are Israelis, I don't know, but it's clearly the nexus is Israeli. So I count them as part of the U.S. combination. And um, it's clear to me, and, and, I, and that's why I'm so impressed with Ted Koppel's new book. He's clearly identified that the, most vul- the biggest vulnerability in the United States is our electrical grid, which, as you know, in the academy we've been talking about for years. I'm glad he's talking about it. Because you don't have to be at that level of the game to hack the grid. You, you could be pretty entry-level hacker to take the power grid down in America, which means that some guy in Kazakhstan could have a field day, even though we don't know he exists. So I, I'm delighted... I mean, one of the things that this may not sound good for someone who's ostensibly views himself as a progressive, I think that Obama did a very smart thing targeting the intelligence behind ISIS. So virtually that whole group of people that were doing the online recruiting, the online, um, all that sexy technology they used. The PR firm, yeah. Yeah. He went after them with drones and he nailed a bunch of them, apparently, including the top people. Uh, he he nailed the people who were who were setting up the cells to Europe, apparently. So that's going to set them back a little while. And because they also have beat the caliphate down, right? I mean, the caliphate is over. I mean, you know, Mosul is falling now, and Raqqa is not going to be far behind. And now that Putin has control of Syria, he doesn't mind. He's happy because he doesn't want to mess around with fundamentalists, Muslim fundamentalists, when he's got his own issues there. In, in Russia with the Muslim minority. But it's really key to look at how vulnerable we would be to a rogue group of hackers who had no national interest that could be lost. So why doesn't China hack our grid? Because we could pulverize them quicker and worse. Why doesn't Russia? We could... I mean, we, look, when Russia... When Russia hacked the DNC, we were able to figure it out by their IP addresses within 24 hours. I mean, our guys are good. They're very good. And, 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 and I don't even think we do a great job running our intelligence community. I think they're kind of sloppy and fat and dumb because they, they, we make it a little too easy for them. But at the end of the day, if we are attacked in a cyber way, I do believe we, we have the ability to inflict far more damage than we would receive. And so no nation state wants to mess with that. Even the Iranians don't want to mess with that. They're trying to get back to the whole. And if you look at the oil deal, which we haven't talked about yet, that Iran is a party to, it's, it's, you can see how, how hard they're pushing because they got themselves exempted 
from any petroleum cutbacks, a pumping punch, even though Saudi Arabia, their arch enemy, did agree to cut dramatically, and Russia agreed to cut, also an enemy. So I'm, I'm looking at this hacking and I'm saying, what happens when a rogue hacker does what Ted Koppel feels, fears, and picks off a part of the grid? It, it, it cascades real fast. Would they get caught? Sure. Would we figure out who they were? Yes. Would we retaliate in some portion? I'm not sure you can. If, if it's a lone squad of hackers, how are you going to find them? Because you can hack from anywhere and move on. It's not like you can put a drone on them. So let's, that brings up another point here. So you were talking about Europe and you are talking about uh, uh, Putin coming out as the victor yeah. who's been supporting a lot of these nationalist movements. But it won't save his economy. Who's been, he's been supporting the dissolution of NATO. He's been behind the scenes doing psyops on the whole planet. And he yeah. supported Trump, obviously, yeah. in the yeah. election. I'm wondering what the kind of black swan risk is then because we're, you know, you mentioned derivatives and we're, we're basically, our economy as the global economy is held together by $600 trillion in derivatives and is at risk essentially. I mean, I used to, well, I'm not sure it's held together, by held together. it's I mean, compromised. It's, by it's, it's, it's more like a suicide vest, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's what I mean is it's, it's, it's underpinning it in a way. Yeah. And that if one thing blows up, one big thing like Deutsche Bank blew up, the whole the ramifications could be incredible, like they were in two thousand seven or eight yeah. or worse. Yeah. So, but that's not a twenty seventeen risk in most. Likely. That is not most likely not. So you're seeing global stability for the next year. year. Yeah. And 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 by the way, we can talk about. And by the way, if people want to talk about black swan events, I'd be happy to do that. But short of black swan events, let's talk about where I was going with the European comment. Yeah. With Renzi. So Europe is a massive trading partner. Not only does it trade with us and other countries in the world, like China, by the way, but it's also trading with itself all the time. And that volume of trade, which right now has finally gotten just above zero, it's like you know 1% plus, actually takes some of the pressure off of the rest of us, meaning the US and the Chinese and the Indians, to keep growing our economies because it, it takes up some of the global demand, okay? Creates, creates global demand, global supply. Europe in, in its shambles becomes a dependency. It becomes something that sucks from the Europe, from the global economy, not adds to it. Now, I want to note, because this is really important, it's happened just in the last 30 days. Finally, you, you've heard me, Paul Krugman, Stiglitz, we've all been saying for many years now, austerity is the dumbest thing in the world. Finally, the British Prime Minister has dropped austerity. It's going to do wonders for Britain. Okay, so May realized austerity is what's been killing them and is reversing it. It's also, by the way, why the white men are angry in Europe. It's because they're losing their jobs to austerity and now we're bringing in more immigrants. So that's where they're really upset. So when you create a rising economy and lots of jobs, you won't have that kind of upset. The Although you will have cultural upsets. We can come back to that. The The fact that Germany is still holding on to it, but beginning to give a wink and a nod. So now there's a discussion going on, happened last week, that Greece is going to be given debt relief finally. Now they're talking about giving it to them in 2025, but what they're really saying is we're going to cut off the tail of the interest that was accumulating and not going to get paid. Finally, that's a, that's a counter-austerity measure. Okay? So what Europe has failed to do is to stimulate its economies since 2008. That's eight years of austerity. It's driven those economies to their knees. 
and it made them vulnerable to nationalist this, to nationalist yeah. movement. No, Nazis, okay? yeah. We did not drive our economy to its knees. We continued to grow it amazingly well. We created 14 million jobs in the last eight years. But we didn't grow it fast enough for people to feel safe. And other things occurred in our economy that caused people to be apprehensive about their future. In Europe, if they get rid of austerity, which I think they will now, and this Renzi losing is the last straw of that camel breaking, because now there's... Look, every major bank in Italy is upside down. Almost no exceptions. Most of the major banks in France, upside down. German banks, weak as the dickens. Now, fortunately, Deutsche Bank has one of its giant customers, a guy named Donald Trump, but other than that, Deutsche Bank's got a lot of problems. And Deutsche Bank is the largest player in the world on derivatives, which is a problem. But having said all that, if they re-stimulate their economy... Now, immediately, before it gets any worse, it will they still could turn back the tide of this populism that's going to shatter European unity. If May... Theresa May. Theresa May, Prime Minister of, of, of England, if she's smart, she will take advantage of that Supreme Court ruling that said, no, you cannot leave the European Union unless there's an act of Parliament because it took an act of Parliament to put you in. That's a godsend. Because if she goes to Parliament... And Parliament has the gall, the, 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 the willingness, the chutzpah, to vote it down by even one vote. It will give such a shot, such a shot in the arm to Europe. And what you'll see is the beginning of a European comeback. If she doesn't take that, and she so far seems like she's not going to take that out, which is kind of crazy. The only other thing she could do, which would be smart, would be to say, why don't we do another referendum? And whatever you vote in your riding, which is the equivalent of their congressional district, whatever vote you have will get Parliament to pass a rule saying it guarantees it will vote the way you tell them to vote. Now, the British people will have a second chance to look at Brexit. And they'll get decided whether they want to go or not. That's what I would do if I was May, because Brexit's a bad idea. If Brexit goes through and people say, well, gee, look, you're, you know, England is still surviving. Yeah, it's surviving because none of the ill effects of Brexit have happened yet. None, virtually. I mean, some, but very mild. So the, the real impact of Brexit hasn't even begun to strike and won't until people know what the deal is. So this is her last chance to get out from underneath an avalanche, and she should take her way do, to do it, because digging out after the avalanche is almost impossible. And that's why I said about Renzi. So what Renzi really is, to complete that thought, unlike the pure populist movements in the rest of Europe that are more nationalist and more xenophobic, there was that element in Renzi. But the real thing going on in Renzi was that people were saying they didn't trust that the government was telling them the truth about how to make the government more efficient. That's what really happened. So they rejected Renzi as the leader of their government because they didn't trust him. So this was, a, this was an election about trust. In the process, though, it opened up the anti-European contingent to be much more powerful now. And so now Italy will be sitting there seriously looking at exiting, doing a Brexit. And I don't know who's going to be in charge. My guess, I mean, a friend of mine who's a very interesting guy, a guy you know, but I won't mention him on the air, who's a very good commentator on European everything, said that it looks to him like Berlusconi will be making the deal from behind the scenes. <laughs> wow. Yeah, which is probably true. Because the Northern, the northern uh, Front, whatever they call it, the Northern uh, League, is uh, his political party, will be in a position to broker the new prime minister. Anyway, I... I, I Europe is in serious, serious trouble. And as Americans, meaning people in the U.S., we don't want that to happen. Um, 
the one economy that you can bank on is going to do very well this year and probably will not have the inflationary pressures the U.S. will have is Canada. So right now, Canadian investments would be a great idea. Uh, I think investments in the Canadian stock market. Uh, I don't recommend to people that they invest in currency transactions. However, if I were going to pick a currency that I think is undervalued and will grow in value over the next year or two, probably the Canadian dollar, which is sometimes referred to as the loony. But I'm not, again, not recommending that because currency trends, I do currency trading, but it's it's not for the faint of heart or people who aren't going to be careful with it. So let's do quickly uh, outlook for the politics, and I'm sorry, the economics of oil. Oh, yeah, I'm so glad you I almost forgot we're going to do that. Yeah, look, the problem with oil is that global demand is peaking, Global supply isn't. You can't depress global supply very much because if you do, the Americans will come on like gangbusters and frack more. A Trump administration is pro-fracking. Clearly, I mean, whatever else they're for, they're going to be for fracking, right? You've got enormous numbers of drilling rigs, both for natural gas and oil, sitting idle. Here's an example. Baker Hughes, oil drilling services company. Baker Hughes was acquired by Halliburton for $35 billion. The government broke it up as an antitrust matter. GE bought it for $7 billion, $7 billion two weeks ago. Why did GE buy it? Because for $7 billion with all those empty derricks, price of oil goes up to 51 which it did today, yesterday. All of a sudden, more derricks are coming online. Why? Because my best friends in the oil patch, and I have a lot of good friends down in Houston because of my relationship with Taylor Brands, um, my good friends, who are the professionals that the highest level who are interfacing in the oil industry, they tell me that you can frack oil and make money as cheap as $45 a barrel. Well, it's at 51 today. When it goes to 55, if it ever did, guess what happens? Just more rigs come on board. And then it goes back down. And then it goes down fast. And, 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 and fracked wells, unlike a conventional well, have a shorter useful life. So they come on you got to punch them out because you got to suck the oil when you blast the rock, right? Six, nine months, you're done. you got to go do another one. So the, the effect of that oil getting to market is very quick. You, you want to drill, which no one's going to, I think, with any rationality, off of a Brazilian in the deep water. That's a four-year lead time minimum. Fracking, it's nine months. So if you give me a $50 per which today is $51 a barrel. And by the way, it's only $51 a barrel even after all that publicity, favorable publicity for oil, right? 51 is nothing. And at 51, fracking is clearly going to come on board. So the if OPEC were to push the price of oil, because uh, the announcements were pushed to 51, it was, I think it was at 46 when they, when they announced, or 45. So they got, whoop to do they got a 10% improvement in the price of oil by agreeing to cut their share. And ain't gonna amount to bupkis because if they try to use that to push oil up into the $55 range, it's just gonna bring way more fracking on. So oil's not gonna go up that high. And that leaves us with the observation that many of us have been making now for quite some time, there's as much water on oil company balance sheets as there is oil. And that means oil stocks are vulnerable. And so, with oil stocks being vulnerable, I mean, that, that's kind of my question is, how, what do you see as, you're, you're saying the oil price is going to stay low. We're looking at oil, oil stocks actually going down eventually, aren't we? 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think going down precipitously eventually. I think what you're going to see is that oil stocks, and in, in certainly right now you're seeing it, in the euphoria euphoria of, because the bank stocks are actually going to win. Health insurance companies are actually going to win. I could name other pipeline companies are going to actually win. Um, the oil companies aren't going to win because what they're fighting is something that they can't control, which is global demand and global supply. And the, and the higher global supply goes up, the worse the price is going to be because the demand is already peaking. Now, just last year, interesting statistic, just last, for the first time in history, renewable energy, new renewable energy in measured megawatts exceeded the new energy that came online from coal and natural gas combined globally. We're talking about electricity, right? Not, yeah. Not transportation. Fuels. Yeah, we're talking about electricity. So for the first time in history, if you look at the amount of new energy created from burning coal and burning oil and gas, it was less than the amount of new energy that we got from renewables. That trend's unstoppable because the price keeps dropping. I'll give you an example. There was a contract in the last two months for 2.4 cents per kilowatt in Dubai. That's like, I mean, that's so cheap. You can't burn coal for 2.4 cents a kilowatt. And that's if you don't recapture the carbon. And by the way, I want to take a quick thing about this. I've heard that the current administration believes in clean coal. I want a couple things on the record. There's which, no such which, which administration? Trump. Okay. The next administration. Yeah. The coming one. Yeah. Yeah. The the concept of clean coal is not only an oxymoron, it's ludicrous. There's no such thing as clean coal, number one. Number two, no one has ever successfully captured CO2 from a coal-fired plant on anything approaching an economically viable basis. And number three, even if they did, there's no way to store it. So it's safe. So the idea of clean coal is completely crazy. Coal's not coming back. Um, the, all those miners in Kentucky would be better off getting jobs from advanced manufacturing plants that could be brought in like South Carolina if Kentucky would get its act together. So if they want to take care of the people in the hollows, give them jobs for the future, not more black lung. Coal is not coming back. Coal was king. Coal is dead. Long live the king. It isn't, it isn't coal anymore. It's natural gas now. And it's soon going to be renewables. So with that, Ronaldo, is there anything else you'd like to add as we uh, close the show? No, I just, a, a personal note. We're, we're going to, this is our last show of 2016, right? Yeah. So we did a lot of questioning in the last few months, as you know, four or five months, about whether we should continue the show. And if so, with what frequency and how should we aim it? And let me just report to the audience. Here's what we heard back from you. We heard that you do want us to continue the show. In fact, there's some push that we do it every other week rather than once a month. Um, there's also been some push that they'd like spontaneous updates closer. So we're going to launch a tweeting, tweet service next year where I'll be tweeting between shows so that something that happens that I think has economic significance, I'll tweet it out so people will know about it if they're one of our uh, listeners and they're part of our identified as a listening audience. And that means they're going to have to send us their email address or we won't be able to send them the tweet, right? Or some way to reach them. Or I guess they can, they can follow the tweet without me knowing that. But if they, if they give us our email address, we'd also be willing to give them other supplemental emails and stuff that we want to send out. Basically, people want more information between these shows. And, and I think that's really important for this reason, Matt. Things are moving so fast. If you think you've seen a lot of change in the last 90 days, watch out for what's coming in the next 90 days, and it's just going to keep accelerating from here. So the more we can get back to people, the more information we can give them to give them a chance to protect themselves, hopefully do well for themselves and their families, 
the better I like it. So we're going to be working on the show, and we're going to we're going to commit to the as I said at the beginning of the show to doing it with punctual like regularity. Uh, we're going to be changing our technology. It looks like, and we're going to be able to do some uh, bringing some people online during the show to talk to them about some of these ideas. And we're going to try and make the show really valuable. And we would like your feedback. We're also going to try and keep political commentary to a minimum. Um, there's some things you got to comment on in order to make economic sense. But basically, this is not going to be a show about politics. It's going to be what it has always been, which is about how people can take care of themselves in a world where these economic forces are so massive and so hard to identify and so hard to understand. So thank you for listening. Uh, it's been five or six years now that we've been doing this. I'm glad we've decided to continue it next year. And I would really re- request earnestly of all of you listening, please send us questions. Send us comments. It makes what we do so much more relevant. And then we know not only that you're out there listening, but then we know what's important to you, and that's what we want to focus on. You can send your comments and feedback to info at worldbusiness.org. Again, that's I-N-F-O at worldbusiness.org. And uh, please visit our website at worldbusiness.org to connect with us in between shows. Uh, Tune in next time for the next episode of New Business Paradigms. And until then, thank you for listening, and please do share this link. Thanks.